at Psalm 75. Psalm 75. And the first thing you notice about Psalm 75, which everyone can say amen, is it only has 10 verses. Uh, so that's nice. When we get to Psalm 78, we'll have a psalm that has 72 verses. So I don't know what we're going to do about that, but we'll do something. So when you look at the superscription, you notice that the psalm has instructions there, uh, and the instructions are to the chief musician that he is to set this psalm, which is a song, to a certain tune. And the tune is called, Do Not Destroy. Now, you know, when you look at a song in your hymn book, for example, it'll have the title of the song, Blessed Assurance, or whatever, and oftentimes it'll have the tune to which those words are set to music. And so these are the words, these are the lyrics, and they're set to a tune called, Do Not Destroy. King David, in Psalm 59, wrote a song and set it to the same music. So just like we have different hymns and different songs that are set to the same music, so this is the second of the psalms that is set to this tune. That's not the theme of the psalm, do not destroy, that's just the name of the tune. Okay? We notice that it's a psalm of Asaph, who is uh, a musician in the temple, lays the cymbals, also speaks for God, he has a speaks as an oracle for God, and uh, he writes 12 psalms, and this is the third psalm that he has written, and we'll see all the psalms all the way up through like Psalm 79 or 80 are written by Asaph, and you can uh, actually all the way through Psalm 83 or so are written by Asaph. So let me give you the outline of the psalm, and this is how we're going to divide the psalm this week. Verse 1 is a prayer of thanksgiving. And this is what this is a prayer that Asaph makes on behalf of Israel, a prayer of thanksgiving. So uh, verses two through five, we will see an oracle from God. Uh, it is an oracle that warns Israel to live a certain way or change. Okay. Next verses, verses six through nine, we have an explanation why we should heed God's warning or the oracle. And then verse 10, we have God's final oracle. Okay, so that's going to be a four-part breakdown of the, the psalm. And it's uh, very simple, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy this psalm. So let's look at section number one, the prayer of thanksgiving. Look what it says. We thank you, O God, we give thanks. Now the first thing that you need to notice, if I ask you what you notice about that sentence, you would notice that we give thanks and we give thanks is mentioned twice, right? And this means that the prayer, this is, this is done so that uh, the uh, reader of the psalm later on will realize that Israel continuously praises God. It's mentioned twice for emphasis to mean this is a continual prayer. This is what Israel is to do, continually praise or thanks, thank God. Notice the pronoun there. We. It's not, it's not Asaph alone praying. This is a congregational prayer. It's a continual prayer. It's a congregational prayer. The fact that it's a congregational prayer means it is a public prayer. When the children of Israel get together in the temple, this is one of the things that they are to do. They are to thank God, and they're to thank God continually. Okay, does that make sense? Now we have the reason for 
thanks, thanking God. Look what it says at the end of verse 1. For, or because, your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So, we thank God because of his wondrous works. Notice that his wondrous works do something. What do they do? They declare. They, and his wondrous works would be his miracles. It's a wonder. That means a miracle. God's intervention on behalf of Israel. When everything seems to be lost, suddenly God shows up. That's a wondrous work. Notice that this wondrous work does something. It declares something. See, It declares something. It announces something. His wondrous works are an evidence of something. Works don't speak, literally, like I'm speaking to you. But works do speak through their actions. They are proof of something. They're evidence of something. What are they evidence of? What do they declare? Look what it says at the end of verse 1. That your name is near. That means, it's another way of saying that you're near. Uh, but it uses the word name. And that's very important. Uh, it means that God can be known. The God who has a name is near. That means that God, his wondrous work, the fact that he's near means he can intervene. That's the wondrous work. He has a name. Remember when Paul goes and he speaks on the, at Mars Hill? He said, I've come to hear to, to you. They have, a, they have a statue there. They believe in all these different gods. And in case they missed one of the gods, they had a statue that says, to the what? Unknown God. A God who didn't have any name. He says, well, guess what? Our God has a name. And our God is near. That means he's close. Okay? And because he's close, his people can call upon him. He's as close as us calling upon him. He's ready to intervene at a moment's notice. He's that close. Okay. In contrast, let's say, to the God of the Baals, the Baal prophets. Remember when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal? He said, oh, let's find out whose God is really God. He said, here's what we'll do. And uh, he said, the God who can, uh, who can uh, destroy this sacrifice by fire is the real God. And so what do the Baal prophets do? They cry out to God, send down fire. And guess what? No answer. Send down fire. No answer. They do it again. Send down fire. No answer. Remember what Elijah says? Maybe your God's taking a vacation somewhere. He's not very near. Maybe he's gone. He says, this is a great one. This is how the King James says. Maybe his feet are covered. That means he's gone to the bathroom. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. And he can't, uh, he can't get there to you, you know. But guess what? That's not how our God is. Our God is known. And our God is near. And he can answer. And when he answers, that declares his glory, and it causes us to continually thank God. Does that make sense? That's verse 1. Now we come to verse 2. We come to the second section where God speaks. And this is his oracle. And look what he says. When I choose the proper time. Now do you see the difference in pronoun? What's the pronoun in verse 1? We. What's the pronoun in verse 2? Ah. When I teach my students Psalms or any book of the Bible, what I'm trying to do is, through my example, show them how to read the Bible. 
See, so when they see that, now look, from now on when you read the Psalms, you should be looking for what? Pronoun to find out who's speaking. Now God's speaking. This takes us into our second section. He says, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Now notice, God is going to judge, but he's going to judge based on his schedule, not our schedule. Oftentimes when God's inactive, we think that uh, he's not near. My God, my God, why are you what? He was right there. He hadn't forsaken Jesus. He was very near. He just didn't answer right at that moment. God chooses the timetable when he's going to intervene and when he's going to judge. Notice he judges uprightly. He judges perfectly. Notice this is a future judgment because he says, look at the verb there. I will judge. Do you see that? This is a future judgment. He has a day set in which he's going to judge the world and he's going to judge the world uprightly. And when he judges, he's going to judge directly. It's not to be through some intermediary. So here God is speaking about a future judgment. Look at verse 3. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. Some translations, your translation might say, the world and all of its inhabitants are shaken, or they sway. Anybody's Bible say something like that? Not too many of you. One has that. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, we don't know whether he's talking about the day that the earth and all of its inhabitants are being dissolved. Everything around us is disintegrating when you say that. Everything that can be shaken seems to be shaken. No matter where it's the economy, the moral fiber of you know, countries or whatever the situation is, everything around us is shaking and dissolving. Or this may refer to when judgment comes, that at the judgment everything is going to dissolve. The scripture talks about the world burning up and dissolving. Everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. So it could be talking about that. But then he says this in verse 3. The world and all of its inhabitants are dissolved. I set its pillars, what? Firmly. While everything's shaking, God still is in control. He's like a stabilizing force. That's true today. It's true. It's going to be true in the day of judgment. Even though everything seems to be falling around and shaking and dissolving all around us, disintegrating, God's got everything in control. Nothing's out of control. Uh, he controls his church. The church is stable. It won't dissolve. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. It's the one thing that will be standing for all eternity. The church. Isn't that right? We go in with... And so, it could speak of now, it could speak of judgment. When everything falls into judgment, there will be one thing that's standing, and the God's kingdom will stand. It reminds me of the passage in Hebrews, and if you don't mind, I'd like you to mark this and turn over to Hebrews 12 and see if this doesn't sound familiar to you. It's a very important passage for people who study kingdom theology. And it's at the end of Hebrews. If you look at verse 25, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. Hebrews 12, 25. <coughs> The writer of Hebrews gives us a warning. In Hebrews 12, 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
That's what we just saw. God was giving an oracle in Psalm 75. For if they did not escape in the past who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turned away from him who speaks from heaven? Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal, there's the dissolving, the disintegration, of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain, be firm. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be what? Shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with revenge and a godly fear. Our God is a consuming fire. So here you see that in the New Testament they, they play upon this concept that everything is going to be dissolved one day, but there will be a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so therefore, because God is a consuming fire and everything is going to dissolve when God judges, we need to hear his voice to make sure we're not part of that which dissolves. So you can see how the New Testament takes these concepts from the Old Testament and applies them to our lives. Now when you go back to Psalm 75, we see that a warning is issued in verse 4. Here's what God says. And he has somebody in mind, a group of people in mind. Look what he says. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. That's line number one. Same meaning is found in line number two. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. So in line number one, boastful equals wicked in line number two. So the wicked person in this case is the boastful person. In line number one, boastfully, See that? The last word there is equal to do not lift up the horn. Now what in the world does that mean? Do not lift up the horn. Do not be boastful. Well, it means uh, don't uh, seek glory for yourself. Don't brag about your accomplishments. Uh, don't heap praise upon yourself. Uh, horns, oftentimes in the Bible, are used as metaphors, and it speaks of honor, and uh, sometimes it speaks of authority and strength. So what he's saying is, you know, don't be boastful, or to put it in modern day language, don't blow your own horn. You see that? That's what it means. Don't go around blowing your own horn. Stop trying to take credit for everything. Like Al Gore took credit for inventing the internet, and other people like that. You know. Stop your bragging. That's what he's saying. Stop your bragging. You know, when you think of horns, who has horns? Well, bulls have horns. And the horns are the glory of the bull. If you ever go to a, you know, if a bull ever gores somebody and it wins a fight, or you've seen some of these fights in the jungles with animals that have horns, they lift those horns up and they're proud of those horns. It's, uh, it's an honor. So, the concept of blowing your own horn or not lifting up your horn is uh, came to stand for 
arrogance, uh, a look at me type of an attitude. Ah, look at me, you know. It says, don't have that kind of attitude. Don't go blowing your horn. Now, in ancient times, to draw attention to themselves, chiefs of tribes were wearing these helmets with these great big horns on them. That got your attention. You knew who the chief was because he had these helmets with horns. Or the greatest warrior of the tribe would wear this helmet with a horn on it. Horns on it. And it was an effort to draw attention to themselves, to bestow honor upon themselves, the others to look upon them to, ooh, that's a great warrior, that's a chief. Now we don't do that today unless you belong to some crazy lodge like the Bullhorn Lodge or something like that. <laughs> but we still do it. You know, we kill the animal, we put its horns, its antlers up on the wall. Now why do we, when we come in and people see it, what do they say? <gasps> do we do that? Now, it's not like it's the worst thing you can do. It's not that we, we don't do it with wrong motives. I'm just showing you how the tradition started way back when. We don't wear horns, but we do put it up for public display. And that means, hey, guess what? I accomplished something. Look at what I did. You have one that day? And the answer is, you know. So God is basically saying here, don't be arrogant. Don't bestow honor on yourself. Now, when he says that, this is a warning. If you're not to do it and you're doing it, what are you to do? Stop doing it. See? Change. Repent. Every time you have an instruction like that, it calls for an action, in this case, for repentance. Now look at verse 5. Look what else he said. Do not lift up your horn on high. I mean, that's, try not to, it means into the heavens. Think of the Tower of Babel. What did they say we were going to do? We're going to build a tower up into the heavens. No one will be able to stop us. Not even God. You see that? Look at me attitude, he said, arrogance. He says, don't do that. Don't go you know, talking in those kinds of terms. Look what else he says in verse 5. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Now, some of you woke up this morning and had a stiff neck. He's not talking about that kind of neck. He speaks of resistance. Okay. It speaks of being stubborn. Uh, Stiff-neckedness, stiff <laughs> stubbornness, and boasting go hand in hand in God's eyes. It's sort of a pride thing. And the only way to escape bestowing honors on yourself and bragging, the only way you can escape God's judgment is to become humility, is to express humility, to humble yourself before God. That's just the opposite of the way these people are. So what we're to do is we are to humble ourselves before God. You don't say, like Al Haig did, I'm in charge here. Remember when Al Haig said that? <coughs> I'm in charge here. See, that's the boasting kind of thing. It says that's not what we're to do. We're to be humble. And we're to be relying upon the Lord. Okay? So we have this oracle here from God. It's a warning. Now we come to the next section, and Asaph gives us the reasons why we need to heed the warning. Okay? So look at reason number one, verse six. Look what he says. For exaltation, this is honor, comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. 
Some uh, translations say promotion. Some translations even say deliverance. Ah, I can get out of this. You know. But it says, we don't know exactly what that means, exaltation, but I think it means honor or promotion, uh, advancement. It doesn't come from the east where the sun rises. It doesn't come from the west where the sun sets. Promotion doesn't come from the south, which would be the desert. That's not where you should be seeking honor and deliverance or whatever. But look at the next word, verse 7. But what? God. Now look at this. So, it doesn't come from the east. It doesn't come from the west. It doesn't come from the south. Where does it come from? It comes from the north. It comes from God. But God is the judge. He's the one who decides who will receive honor, who deserves, you know, accolades. See? It comes from the north. Watch this. He puts one down, and he exalts the other. He's the one that lifts you up. You know, I wanted one day wanted to be a great evangelist. I said, I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. Guess what I was doing? Bragging, had visions of grandeur. See? One day I got smart enough, so I can't force this thing. If it's going to happen, who's going to do it? God's going to do it. Well, he chose not to do that. And I'm glad he did. That would have been my downfall. So God's the one who does what? What does it say? He's the one who puts up, he's the one who puts another person down. Okay, that's, so the first reason why we're to heed the warning and not to brag is because, hey, God's the one that will bestow honors on you to the degree that he wants to bestow an honor on you. Now, our second reason you're to obey the warning, heed the warning, is found in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup. That doesn't sound good. This is a cup of wrath. Okay? And look what it says. And in that cup, the wine is red. That doesn't sound good. Blood red, you know. It's, uh, there's going to be a judgment. And he is using this simile or this metaphor to describe judgment as a cup that's filled up with this blood red wine. Oftentimes wine and grapes are connected with judgment in the scriptures. Last week we sang the, the hymn, He's trampling out the vintage. We're the what? Grapes of wrath. God has this cup, and he's ready to pour out these grapes of wrath. And then it goes on to say, it is fully mixed. And we're going to see what that means, but it could mean that other ingredients have been added. But let me tell you, it's very strong. This judgment's going to be a strong judgment. And he's going to pour it out. He pours out his wrath. And then look at the end of verse 8. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. 
So he's mixing up this wine. And guess what's on the bottom? This is a wine that is, there's dregs in it. This is wine that has sat for a long time. It's gotten thick. It's mature, but it's more than that in a sense. It's gotten thick. And now he's going to mix it up. And when you mix it up, guess what you're mixing up from the bottom? The dregs. See? You don't want to drink dregs. You, you know what happens when you get, if you drink coffee and you get coffee grounds in your cup and you drink it? That's bitter. This is a bitter judgment. Or you, your tea leaves, and you don't like the tea leaves, but you like the tea. It's bitter. So what happens is that he's talking about how this is going to be a strong judgment. It's going to be poured out. And even that junk on the bottom, the dregs, who's going to drink it? The wicked are going to drink it. Who are the wicked? Well, we saw who the wicked were. Saw that up in verse 4. They're the boastful. They're the wicked. The ones who are... Don't put God in the equation. They're promoting themselves, you see. They're going to get it. Notice what he says. Surely. Do you see the word surely there? Certainly. This is guaranteed. There's no doubt about it. It's going to happen. Look what else you see there. Surely shouts all the wicked of the earth. How many? No, no one's going to escape. No one's going to escape this judgment. It's wicked. They're all going to be judged. And look at this. They're not only going to drink it, they're going to drain it. I mean, they're going to drink the full, the full wrath of God. It's going to hit. It's draining. In other words, when God pours out his judgment, there's no judgment left. It all's poured out. They don't only drink it, they drain it. <laughs> See? This is a serious situation. And so this is what he's describing. It's going to be a bitter pill to swallow when God's certain day of judgment comes upon the earth. But by contrast, look at verse 9. Look what Asaph says. But I will declare forever. I will sing the praises to the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He says, I, they will be judged, the wicked will be judged, but I will forever be praising the name of God. So there's two outcomes in the judgment. Some are going to be shaken and dissolved and the wrath of God is going to pour out upon them. They'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. The other outcome, some will stand firm and they will be praising and rejoicing God forever. So, that's the reasons why we need to heed the warnings. I would rather heed the warning than to ignore the warning and be stiff-necked. So now we come to God's final oracle, and that's verse 10. So look what God says. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. Uh, they're going to be stripped totally of their honor. All the honor that they bestowed upon themselves, all the power, you know, all the attention, totally cut off. All again. None of it will remain. See? No one will escape. But the horns are the honor of the righteous. So here's the second outcome. We'll be what? Exalted. And God is going to exalt us. And he's going to bestow honor upon us at the judgment. Very similar to verse 7. God is the judge. He puts one down. He exalts the judge. 
Now, this is a, a psalm that has historical significance because God throughout history, in small portions, raises some people up and he puts others down. And just about every nation on the earth has been put down, one nation right after another. Kings and kingdoms, as Bill Gates or Sloan said, kingdoms, kings and kingdoms, they all pass away. And they have passed away. People have been put down and others have been lifted up throughout history. So it has a historical significance. It has a significance for us today. We live in history. But it also has an eschatological significance, which means an end time significance. And at the end of the age, there will be a final putting down of the wicked and a final exhortation of the righteous. And... Uh, this is what Jesus teaches. When you read all of Jesus' teachings and about the kingdom of God, what does he say? He says the first will be what? Last. And what will happen to the last? Who will be first? He says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be a servant of what? Of all. So it's this reversal. You know, It's the story that we told last week of the rich man and Lazarus. And this life, the rich man was had it all, but guess what? In the next life, he's put down. He has nothing. And poor Lazarus, who had to sit by the gate begging, he's dining at the table with Abraham in the kingdom of God. So it's a kingdom psalm. And it's a guideline for us to live. Now with that, we've just finished Psalm 75. Which means we're one half of the way through the psalm. Now I'm going to tell you what this says about me. It says that I'm a plotter. You know what a plotter is? It's not necessarily a good thing. But it's the thing that this turtle does when it's running against the rabbit. So we're halfway through the psalm. And by the end of the summer, we'll be up to about Psalm 83. And we'll be then be nearly 65% of the psalm. And then we we'll only have four or five more years to go. <laughs> I'm just hoping this is enough motivation to keep you and me going. Keep coming back. Stay alive, you know. So next week, we're going to have to do Psalm 76. And uh, Peggy's going to do a dramatic reading of Psalm 76 for us before I do that. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter what the circumstances are in this life, we, we know what it's like when we look at athletes and movie stars and people who are always putting their name up at lights and trying to promote themselves. And, and uh, it seems like they have all the advantages. Uh, they're not living godly lives. They're living for themselves. And we say, Lord, it just doesn't seem right. And yet, you're the one who promotes. You're the one who puts down. And when we go against that, We'll go against your, your oracle, your guidelines for us. Then we are stiff-necked and we can't be helped. Help us to see, Lord, that a lot of what's going on and what we count as success and by the world standards is going to be very temporary. Help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And you promise that everything will be added to us. The meek shall inherit the entire earth. Oh, Lord, that's the promise you give us. Now help us to be obedient to your oracle, to your word, in Christ's name. Amen.